0: Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. Today what is Zionism? After the recent upsurge in Israeli-Palestinian violence we examine the political philosophy that helped create the state of Israel and now sustains it.
1: Zionism really, in many ways, was a break from Jewish tradition. It was a revolutionary approach to Jewish history in wanting to establish or re-establish a Jewish homeland and return Jews to this ancient homeland. After 2000 years of Jewish experience in the diaspora, where Jews essentially learned to live without statehood.
0: We'll also be exploring claims that Israel is an apartheid state, that it's a racist state, and looking at what Zionism means both for Jews and Palestinians.
1: There's no question that the creation of the State of Israel had a devastating impact upon Palestinian Arabs. The vast majority of them were driven out or fled from their homes. Many of them were forcibly expelled.
0: All that to come. First, a reminder that the Byline Times can report without fear or favour because there's no media mogul pulling our strings, no corporate backer lining our pockets and telling us what to say. We're funded by wonderful people like you, subscribing to our monthly paper, The Byline Times. It's a great read, guaranteed, and it costs just £36 a year. That also pays for this podcast, our brilliant news-breaking website, and it supports Byline TV too. You'll find more details about how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already subscribed, thank you very much. Now, whatever your views on the current conflict between Israel and Palestinians, both within its own borders and next door in Gaza, there's no doubt that we're witnessing a large-scale human tragedy. As I'm recording this, 229 people have died in the latest flare-up, the vast majority of them Palestinian. That death toll includes 63 children. But what are the deep-lying roots of what seems to be never-ending violence in the region? I've been speaking to Dov Waxman about Zionism, the political ideology that inspired the creation of Israel. Dov's written a book, The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know and he's also Professor of Israel Studies at UCLA in California. He's been telling me how Zionism started.
1: Well, Zionism is really an ideology that emerged in the latter half of the 19th century. It is a modern political ideology. It certainly draws upon a long-standing Jewish religious attachment to the land of Israel. But it is a modern ideology, which essentially based upon a number of kind of foundational tenets. First, that the Jews are a nation, not merely a religious group. Secondly, that Jews as a nation have a right to national self-determination. And thirdly, that Jews should exercise this right to national self-determination in their historic homeland, the land of Israel. And so those are the kind of core claims of Zionism, at least in its original incarnation in the late 19th century. And in many ways, it emerged in Europe, primarily in response to the particular crises and challenges facing European Jews, especially Jews in Eastern Europe at the time. Primarily, it was a response to rising anti-Semitism, but it was also a response to increasing assimilation Zionism proposed then both a solution to anti-Semitism, namely the idea that if Jews became quote-unquote normal nation, if they lived in their own homeland and had their own state, then anti-Semitism would diminish, if not disappear, or at least Jews would be safe from it. And Zionism also proposed the idea that by living in a Jewish state or in a Jewish homeland, Jews would be able to maintain a Jewish identity and a collective identity in the modern age. So it was something that appealed primarily to European Jews and primarily out of the circumstances facing them in the late 19th century.
0: And had there ever been anything that we would recognise as a state of Israel historically in the land that Israel now is situated in?
1: Well, there were ancient Jewish kingdoms in the area of in in historic Palestine or what uh, Jews refer to as Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. So there is a history or a Jewish political history in the land of Israel and and Zionism, in a sense, sought to reconstitute that political history and revive Jewish sovereignty after what was a more than 2000 year historical break. But in many ways, although that ancient history is relevant insofar as it speaks to Jewish collective memories and religious beliefs and historical attachments, Zionism really in many ways was a break from Jewish tradition. It was a revolutionary approach to Jewish history in wanting to establish or re-establish a Jewish homeland and return Jews to this ancient homeland after 2,000 years of Jewish experience in the diaspora, where Jews essentially learned to live without state. And where Judaism evolved in such a way as to not depend upon the need for a particular homeland.
0: And you describe it as a European phenomenon. Did Jews in the land that is now called Israel, who were living there at the time, also share this ideology?
1: No, interestingly enough, Jews who were living in what was then Ottoman Palestine, or indeed in in the wider Middle East and North Africa, they certainly had a religious attachment to the land of Israel. And that was, after all, why Jews were living in Ottoman Palestine. They weren't ultra-Orthodox Jews who were there out of their religious beliefs. But Zionism uh, didn't really appeal to them. In fact, they rejected Zionism as a heretical movement, as something that was trying to do God's work or usurp the role of God. It was really something that was aimed at and embraced by Jews in Europe, and in particular, Jews in Eastern Europe. Not Even Jews in Western Europe, in the United Kingdom and in France and other places, uh, weren't really the primary audience for Zionism.
0: So how did that political ideology then eventually lead to the creation of the state of Israel in 1948?
1: Well, part of the kind of genius, if you like, of the Zionist movement was that it combined this idea of restoration of Jewish sovereignty and uh, rebuilding of the ancient Jewish homeland with a very practical mode of action. So it focused on immediately beginning this process of mass return or or trying to bring over large numbers of Jewish migrants or refugees or settlers or colonists, call them what you will, and start to establish on the ground from the 1880s onwards, initially small agricultural settlements and these these, grew into larger communities. And so really from the 1880s onwards, the Zionist movement started to establish and build the infrastructure on the ground for what would later become the state of Israel. So it was doing this long before Zionism had the support of the world's Jews. Most Jews before the Holocaust were not Zionists, didn't support Zionism. And the Zionist movement was doing this before it had international support. It it gradually gained more diplomatic support later, but its strategy was a very pragmatic one of establishing these communities, of building these settlements and growing them over time. And so by the time of the British mandate in Palestine, the Zionists had already established a small fledgling community, uh, a new Jewish community in Palestine. And then under British patronage, essentially, this community then developed over the course of the 1920s and 30s. So that the Zionist movement by the 1940s was well prepared for statehood because they'd already established the economic, the social and even the political infrastructure uh, for a Jewish state.
0: And the British Mandate lasted from the period at the end of World War One to the period just after World War II, and Britain was pledged to create two states, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state.
1: Well, not as much as it people think. Uh, people read the Balfour Declaration, the famous Balfour Declaration of 1917, as British support for the establishment of a Jewish state. But in fact, if you look at the text of that letter that was written by the British Foreign Secretary at the time, Arthur Balfour to the head of the Zionist movement in the UK, what the British government actually promised to support was not the establishment of a Jewish state, but rather the establishment of a Jewish homeland. And there's an important distinction the british were always very careful with their word choice and then there's an important distinction there so they wanted they they pledged to support the creation of a national home for the jewish people in palestine and again the choice the use of the word in saying not all of palestine would be a national home for the jewish people but that it would take within the territory of palestine what the Balfour declaration though didn't do was recognize the rights of the indigenous inhabitants Of Palestine, Palestinian Arabs, who were merely referred to as the non-Jewish inhabitants. They weren't actually given a name, their national identity wasn't recognised, nor their national aspirations.
0: Sometimes in modern times, the phrase is used, settler colonialists in relation to Israelis. The way that you've described it, there was a conscious movement of European Jews to assert themselves in A land that many of them hadn't grown up in, but which they felt was theirs by right, only through an ancestral connection dating back 2000 years.
1: Yeah, and there's certainly, I mean, if you look at the process of Zionist settlement from the 1880s onwards, there are certainly similarities with other settler colonial movements, and you can, and it, and this is why nowadays, within academia, the understanding of Zionism as a form of settler colonialism is, is widespread. But I think you know when it comes to the perceptions or the attitudes that Zionists had to the local Arab population, that is certainly similar to the perceptions of. European colonizers in other parts of the world that believed that they were somehow entitled to settle in these areas, the perception of these areas as almost empty lands, terra nullis, uh, or at the very least not affording the indigenous inhabitants of these areas equal rights, recognizing that they too had equal rights. And in the case of Zionism, the fact that, is that the Zionist movement Recognize the need to ally itself with colonial powers like Great Britain. However, there's a crucial distinction. I think, in many respects, there are these similarities, but I think the crucial difference is that the Jewish colonists or Jewish settlers to Palestine from the late 19th century didn't see themselves as settling a foreign land, but rather saw themselves as coming home to their homeland. They weren't going away, but coming home. Uh, they were motivated not by the pursuit of Riches of wealth as colonists in other places were, but rather were motivated largely out of a desire to flee from anti Semitism. They were refugees in many respects. So fundamentally, I think the motivations behind Zionist settlement differed than the motivations behind settlers in other places. Of course, from the Palestinian Arab perspective, you know, that distinction is an academic one. I mean, as far as Palestinian Arabs were concerned, these settlers were just like other European settlers. And the, what they, the threat that they represented was no different from Europe, the threat that other European colonizers represented. And the impact it had on Palestinians wasn't really different. Although I think it should be pointed out that the Zionist settlement wasn't done at the behest of an imperial power. In the same way. It wasn't uh, that the, the Russian Empire was sending Russian Jews over to Palestine to settle this territory in order to increase Russian uh, strategic influence or in the way that, say, the British did in other parts of the world or the French or others. So there were important differences in the, the reasons why Zionist settlement took place. But I think in terms of the impact it had upon Palestinian allies, there are there are similarities with other settler colonial societies.
0: So was there resentment from the start of the Zionist project from the indigenous Arab population?
1: The resentment, I think, increased over time. Initially, when the when the first settlers, colonists, were arriving and actually employing local Arabs in their agricultural settlements, there was not this great animosity. I mean, this was a, these were small communities of Jewish settlers who weren't perceived to pose a major threat to the majority population of Ottoman Palestine. It was only as the numbers of Jewish settlers really started to expand And as the numbers grew, they started to be seen as a growing threat to the political aspirations of the Arab population of Palestine, as well as their economic needs, because the later generations of Jewish settlers didn't employ Arabs on their agricultural communities. And in fact, when they purchased land from absentee Arab landowners, they generally evicted the Palestinian tenant farmers who were living in those areas and working that land. So over time, as Zionist settlement expanded, it was seen by growing numbers of Palestinian Arabs as a threat, and so resentment and animosity started to intensify. But I would say it wasn't really until the post-World War I period that the conflict between these Jewish settlers and the Palestinian Arabs really breaks out into violence. Before then, there were concerns. Palestinian notables were appealing to the Ottoman authorities, asking them to do something about these, you know, Jewish migrants or immigrants. But it didn't really take on the form of a kind of national conflict until the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties.
0: And some people look to the year nineteen forty eight. The founding year of the state of Israel, look to the proximity of that to the Holocaust and assume that there must be a connection between the two things. But I know you've written questioning that connection.
1: Yeah, I think it's understandable because of the proximity between the Holocaust and Israel's establishment in 1948 that many people see a direct linkage and believe that, you know, the Jewish state was somehow established purely out of compensation or Western guilt for Jewish suffering in the Holocaust, and that that if it hadn't been for the Holocaust, simply put, there would be no Jewish state. And I think that really is a historical understanding. For one thing, it ignores the fact, as I was mentioning before, that zionists on the ground in palestine in in ottoman and then certainly in british palestine were actually building the infrastructure for a jewish state before the holocaust and believing in the need for a jewish state before, before the holocaust and before the holocaust they'd also obtained the support from major international powers like the british but also the french and the americans also supported the zionist movement before the holocaust what the holocaust did do and i think it certainly did have a major impact was First of all, make the Zionist movement much more determined to achieve a Jewish state as quickly as possible. Before the Holocaust took place, although they wanted a Jewish state, Zionists were not explicit about that because they didn't want to lose international or British support or arouse out opposition, and they also were prepared to do this in a much more in a slow, uh, piecemeal fashion, but. As the news of the Holocaust reached the Zionists, so they became much more determined to achieve a Jewish state as soon as possible, as quickly as possible, and therefore much more willing to confront the British. It also helped convince Jews around the world, particularly Jews in the United States, who had become the most important Jewish constituency, of the need for a Jewish state. So, as I mentioned before, Jews previously were not Zionists. Most Jews, for a variety of reasons, opposed Zionism. But the Holocaust really convinced Jews in the diaspora of the need for a Jewish state. And American Jews in particular lent the Zionist movement very important support in the United States, which helped in turn get the United States on board. So that was important. And then in terms of the international diplomacy, I think if we look at the international diplomacy uh, in the post-World War II period, and particularly around the the famous UN partition vote of November 1947, the Holocaust did have an impact there. But in particular, it was not just the tragedy of the Jewish genocide during the Holocaust, but actually the problem of Jewish displaced persons and refugees after the Holocaust. So it was really, there was a need to resolve this issue of what to do with Uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews who had survived the Holocaust, but for one reason or another were unable or willing to return home to their European countries, and therefore needed to go somewhere. And in that respect, it put pressure on the international community, and on the United States in particular, to come up with a solution for these Jewish displaced persons and refugees, and, and that in turn encouraged them to support the idea of partitioning Palestine. So the Holocaust. Absolutely played an important role, but I think it would be wrong to believe that there wouldn't be an Israel or if it wasn't for a Holocaust. Or at least there, that Zionism was purely a response to that, or Western support for, the Jewish, uh, for Zionism was purely a response to the Holocaust.
0: And there was a proposal at that point to create two states, an Arab-Palestinian state and the Jewish state of Israel, but the Palestinians rejected the two-state solution.
1: That's right ever since the so called uh, Peel Commission report of the British government in 1937 in fact when the that was the first time that partition was p- proposed the Palestinian leadership rejected the partition proposal made by the British in 1937 and then again 10 years later rejected the partition plan put forward by the United Nations in November of 1947 now in retrospect these decisions by the Palestinian leadership at the time can be faulted. If the Palestinian leadership had accepted the British proposal in 1937, they would have ended up with a much larger state, uh, larger than, than the Jewish side would have had. And similarly, they would certainly have ended up with a larger state than the one that they might end up with if they do end up with a state, if they had accepted the partition plan of 1947. But it's important to bear in mind that Palestinian Arabs were the majority of the population in Palestine at the time. In 1947, they accounted for two thirds of the population. And so they believed that by right, Palestine should be entirely theirs because they were the majority of the population. And they believed that they were the stronger party as well. And so they were convinced that in the event of a conflict, they would win. That turned out to be obviously a catastrophic error of judgment. So it's easy in retrospect to fault the Palestinian Arab leadership. And I think they, they deserve criticism. But I think it's also important to understand their perceptions at the time. And it's easier to see these things in hindsight, of course.
0: What was the impact of the creation of the state of Israel on Palestinian Arabs? Were people displaced? Yes
1: i mean there's no question that the creation of the state of israel had a devastating impact upon palestinian arabs the vast majority of them were driven out or fled from their homes many of them were forcibly expelled in the uh, during the course of the what was what started as a civil war between jews and palestinians in 1947 and then became an interstate war between Israel and the Arab states in 1948. During the course of that conflict, the majority of the Palestinian Arab community either fled or were driven from their homes, forcibly expelled. Those who remained found themselves a, a small minority living under a military regime, for the first two decades of Israel's existence. And to this day, remain a minority in inside Israel who are often viewed as a kind of internal enemy or a potential fifth column and who have been subject to decades of government neglect and official and unofficial discrimination. For Palestinians outside of Israel, many of those Palestinian refugees became stateless and have faced decades of Neglect and discrimination and poverty in the surrounding region, in places like Lebanon, for example, where Palestinians, uh, Palestinian refugees have faced appalling conditions and, and systemic discrimination. And, of course, in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, the Palestinians, most of them who uh, who had been refugees, initially lived under Egyptian and Jordanian rule until 1967 and then since 1967 have now been under five decades of Israeli military rule. So there's no question, I think, that the creation of Israel was, as Palestinians describe, it, a disaster, what they call a nakba. It's led to their collective dispersal, dispossession, and has, of course, meant that they, to this day, lack a national self-determination. And in many cases, any kind of freedom So I think it's important, whatever you, however one views the justice of Zionism or the legitimacy of Israel's creation, it is important to also acknowledge that Israel's creation exacted a very, very heavy toll upon Palestinians.
0: And as you've described it, Israel, at its creation, faced conflict. I think five Arab states invaded Israel in a war that ended in 1949 that allowed Israel to expand its territory. There was a 1967 war, the Six-Day War, which saw Israel expand to the Golan Heights. These lands are known as the occupied territories. And there has been a constant state of war or near war with its neighbours ever since. The way I look at it, I see that there are two grievances feeding into this ongoing conflict. Israel feels itself to be a state in permanent siege under potential threat of attack from its neighbours and from other countries in the Middle East. Palestinians feel that they have been displaced and they nurture a long-standing sense of grievance about that. And it's when you think of it in those terms, it's very difficult, isn't it, to see the grounds for potential peace? Yes, I think it's important
1: to recognize that both Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs are two deeply traumatized peoples, for whom in relatively recent memory have undergone terrible collective tragedies, which have shaped their narratives to this day, their collective narratives and their perceptions of the the wider world. For Israeli Jews, the Holocaust, of course, is the kind of defining collective trauma, but also the seemingly endless wars and attacks that Israelis have faced since Israel's creation. And for Palestinians, the Nakba in 1948, but also ongoing displacement, forced displacement that has continued since 1948. So these are, are very foundational to both sides. It's why both sides see themselves exclusively as the victims in this conflict. And I find it so difficult because they have such an acute sense of their own victimhood and an awareness of their own collective grievances that it's very difficult for them to acknowledge the victimhood of the other side and to see that there is another and to acknowledge another narrative. So, you know, when you consider how traumatized these two populations are and the ways in which they continue to see themselves as the sole victims in this and, and to really are not even aware, in many cases, of the other side's narrative or experiences. There's really mutual denial on both sides. It does give one a feeling of hopelessness about how this conflict can ever be resolved. But I think, you know, we've seen in other historical cases and other long-running conflicts that it is possible To uh, it takes time, it takes a great deal of energy and hard work and investment. But it is possible to shift collective narratives, it is possible for groups to overcome decades of enmity. It's not easy, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to become best friends or enjoy harmonious relations overnight or any or even in even over decades. But it is, I think, important to not see this conflict as one that is set in stone and is immutable, or to see both peoples as somehow trapped in their own histories and unable to escape from them.
0: The most widely accepted definition of modern antisemitism has been created by the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. They say that it is antisemitic to call Israel a racist state. Israel does give every Jew around the world the right, the theoretical right, to settle in Israel. And the nation-state law that was introduced a couple of years ago says that the right to exercise national self-determination in Israel is unique to Jewish people. So in that sense, it would appear that Jews are privileged over any other group in Israel. Isn't that the definition of racism? Well
1: I, I think well, I would absolutely agree that from the beginning of Israel's statehood until today, Jews have been privileged officially by, by Israeli laws and practices. and you, may, you mentioned the, the law of return it, as perhaps the most uh, obvious example where any Jew anywhere in the world can has the automatic right to immigrate to Israel and obtain citizenship. Whereas Palestinians who were expelled from uh, Palestine in 1948 or have family members living in Israel today or in the occupied territories don't have that same right. It's unquestionable discrimination. Whether that is motivated by racism, however, is, I think, a different question. I mean, I I, I think there is no small amount of racism within Israeli society. But I'm not sure if I would attribute the reasons behind those policies or discrimination to racist feelings. I think it's a belief that as a Jewish state, Jews are entitled to receive preferential treatment in the same way that there are other ethno-national states around the world that accord preferential treatment to members of those ethnic nations. For example, Germany had had laws that gave preferential rights to ethnic Germans to emigrate to Germany. So I'm not sure if racism captures it all. And that's not to say that there isn't racism. But going back to the question of whether it is anti-Semitic to call Israel a racist state, I don't believe it is. I think I don't agree with that characterization of Israel. But I think criticism of Israel that may be very harsh incorrect, false, excessive, doesn't necessarily make it anti-Semitic. There's lots of things we might think are wrong without necessarily calling them racist or anti-Semitic. So I think the IHRA in in at least giving the impression that delegitimizing Israel, quote unquote, or calling it a racist state or an apartheid state is anti-Semitic, I think that goes too far. Because I think there are many people who oppose Israel as a Jewish state, who oppose Zionism or anti-Zionist, but do so for a whole host of reasons that have nothing to do with anti-Semitism.
0: Another version of calling Israel a racist state is to call it an apartheid state. Do you think that's acceptable?
1: Well, I think I would distinguish between the describing Israel simply as an apartheid state, which I think is inaccurate is problematic versus what say the recent human rights watch report did which is describe the state of israel as carrying out apartheid policies in other words i think this is important to distinguish between the state itself and the policies pursued by particular governments i i think it, in recent years at least the israeli government under netanyahu insofar as it no longer has any real willingness to withdraw from much of the West Bank, so far as it's essentially dispensed with the possibility of a two-state solution and is only seeking to entrench Israel's permanent rule in the West Bank and and to formalize what is essentially legal discrimination between Jews and non-Jews, I think in the West Bank, Israel's policies can be described as apartheid. Or at least, in, uh, they can be. Israel can be accused of carrying out the crime of apartheid, specifically with regards to Palestinians in the West Bank. But that's not the same as describing Israel, the state of Israel, in, in in its essence as an apartheid state. So I think, nor is it the same as saying that Israel is like apartheid South Africa. Apartheid is a specific crime defined under international law, and we can see do, do Israel's policies. Have Israel's policies, particularly in recent years, crossed that legal threshold to be classified as committing the crime of apartheid? That question is debatable, but I think that's different. And I I, I think there's good reason for why people point to Israel as carrying out the crime of apartheid in its policies today. But I think that's not the same thing as saying Israel simply is an apartheid state or that Israel is the same as apartheid South Africa. I think neither of those much broader claims are accurate.
0: When Israel was created, it did so with the backing of the United States. And in some senses, it is seen, particularly on the left, as a product of imperialism and an agent of Western imperialism.
1: Well, I think the, the Zionist movement has certainly benefited historically from European colonialism, and I mean it benefited from its from British support in the 1920s and 1930s, and later it benefited from American support. So, if you think of those as kind of imperial powers, then then certainly the Zionist movement and uh, Zionist leaders cultivated the support of imperial powers, the United Kingdom first, and then the United States. But I think that's not the same as saying that the, that the state of Israel, the Zionists, were simply the agents of imperialism, that suggests that they were kind of, they were merely um, the instruments of Western imperialism. And I think that doesn't acknowledge the actual reasons for why the Zionist movement emerged. Uh, It doesn't acknowledge Zionist agency. It kind of depicts them as simply the tools of colonial powers. And I think it also obscures what is actually a more complex relationship between the Zionist movement and the British government, and then the, the state of Israel and the United States. Yes, there's support, but actually, in, in its early decades, the United States was not Israel's strongest supporter. It was only more recent, and only after 19, the 1967 Six-Day War, that American support for Israel really increased. And that was largely because of America's Cold War, uh, strategic goals in the Cold War. So the idea that from the outset, you know, the United States has been this patron and protector of Zionism and, and, that, the, and that the Israelis have been doing America's bidding is, is actually a distortion of it of history.
0: It's worth noting, just to go back to where we started this conversation, Dov, that Zionism is not the same as being Jewish. And Zionism, as it emerged, had many critics within the Jewish community around the world. Even today, when many Jews support the state of Israel, there are also many Jews who do not support the state of Israel. Some of them, even living within the state of Israel itself. It is not reasonable or fair to equate Judaism or being Jewish with Zionism or being a Zionist.
1: Right, and that's, I think, been one of the difficulties in the the growing debate around how to define anti-Semitism and the debate about the, the IHRA definition in particular. Does it conflate Zionism and the state of Israel with Jewishness? Does it assume that Israel somehow represents all Jews, which it clearly does not. And there was in the past, and there is still today, a debate among Jews about Zionism and about uh, Israel's policies in particular. That said, I think it is important to recognize that today, unlike in the period before Israel's statehood, most Jews around the world do identify as Zionists, do support the idea of Israel as a Jewish state, do want Israel to continue to be a Jewish state. And so when Israel or Zionism is attacked When Israel is described as an apartheid state or as an illegitimate entity or racist state, many Jews in the diaspora experience this as an attack upon their own Jewish identity and experience this as anti Jewish. So even if it isn't intended to be, even if the person making that critique is making a critique of Zionism, because for many Jews, Zionism has simply become support for the existence of a Jewish state. Therefore, it is experienced by many Jews as as something that's anti-Semitic. And I think that's partly where this confusion lies, that, you know, on the one hand, people want to treat Zionism as an ideology, which can be critiqued like any other ideology, and I think that's important. Whereas for Jews, Zionism isn't just an ideology. Zionism has become part of contemporary Jewish identity for many Jews around the world.
0: Dov Waxman from UCLA in California. And over the coming months, we'll be offering a range of perspectives on the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Before we go, just a reminder to please subscribe to our monthly paper, The Byline Times, if you possibly can. It funds this podcast, the website, and it helps support Byline TV. Get more details on how to subscribe at BylineTimes.com. That's BylineTimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been The Byline Times Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.